This broadcast is part of the Atlanta Business League's official 90th anniversary celebration. This is Lessons from Leaders, an Atlanta Business League podcast. Well, I'm Thomas W. Dortch, Jr. And he will spend the next 30 minutes sharing stories about his life and business breakthroughs. Lessons from Leaders is a part of the Atlanta Business League's Telling Our Story broadcast series. You could probably describe Thomas W. Dorch Jr. as a man with the Midas touch because of his successful and long career as an entrepreneur in Atlanta, Georgia. In my 29 years in business, I've exceeded over $200 million that I've been able to generate from my six businesses. But before his success in business, Thomas W. Dorch Jr. made history with a 16-year career in national politics, even though he's never been elected into a political office. I actually joined the Atlanta Business League before I even started my first business. That was when I was with U.S. Senator Sam Nunn. He's being modest. He was the first African-American to serve as a chief administrator and state director for a United States senator. He earned that position partially because of his track record as a student at an HBCU, Fort Valley State. I registered 96% of all of the students on Fort Valley State uh, University's campus to vote. And when I got to Fort Valley, there was only one black elected official in a 57% black county and almost a 60% black city. And so what we decided as students is that we had to work to change that paradigm. So as a college student, he had no problem organizing other young people to follow his plan to change the political dynamics in the city of Fort Valley because he had spent his entire life being groomed to be a leader. I was all-state basketball. I played in a band. I was in the glee club. I was student government president my ninth grade, my, my 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. I was SGA president in 1968. Last graduating class, I was salutatorian. Missed by point, two percentage points. And being the top person in my class, that was 68 when I graduated. 69, the school system integrated. And the amazing thing was the teachers, uh, the majority of my teachers were graduates of HBCUs. But what I loved about my teachers, they taught us excellence without excuse. College freshman Thomas W. Dorch Jr. didn't think he could change the political paradigm in Fort Valley, Georgia. He knew it could be done because he watched paradigms change in his hometown of Toccoa, Georgia. And I watched my father, who was an entrepreneur, and that was the early part of my life. Watched him and small number of uh, black business owners, the local uh, superintendent of um, principal and superintendent of our local school, watched uh, the funeral director and the barbershop owners, and they made up what was a power base. The one thing that really had uh, an indelible mark on my whole future and career, because I watched the power being unified. 
even though we were only 10% of the population, my father and the business owners would get together. They'd meet with the uh, local white citizens who were running for public office. They made a decision based on who was going to do the most and best for our community. And I never saw anybody they endorsed uh, lose. It was in Toccoa, Georgia, that a young Tommy Dorch Jr. saw multiple examples of how a small, unified African-American community could operate from a position of strength. Like when I was a junior and about to move as a senior, you know, we were right in the heart of the Vietnam War. And my father went down to the local draft board. I remember him going down and saying, look, if your sons are not going to be drafted to go into this war, then my sons and the sons of my community, members of my community, aren't going to be drafted either. And because too many people went off to the Vietnam War and came back in body bags. And lo and behold, that didn't happen. Tommy's father also taught him how to maneuver around the arbitrary restrictions of the segregated South. Now, my county, Stevens County, was a dry county. But eight miles away in South Carolina, you can go buy liquor and everything right across the state line. But Dad and those in their restaurants, they just go into South Carolina, buy all the vodka and stuff they wanted, sold it. But because they had supported the winners in the race, they come and say, well, the state revenue department is going to raid. Don't let them find anything today. And they didn't. Or they say, well, let them find at least a bottle or two and you just tell them it's personal use. We'll go ahead and dismiss it. But what people didn't realize is that black people and white people worked together even back during segregation. The tight-knit black community in Tacoa taught Tommy another lesson about mentoring that he carries with him to this day. There were mentors coming all sizes and shapes. I remember one case. There was this guy, Billy, um, on weekends was kind of a neighborhood drunk. He was a handyman for my father around business. And I remember my dad told Billy to take me down, because I had just turned 16, take me down to the state trooper's office to get my learner's license renewed. And he said, look, you know how to drive. I'll let you drive down Curahee Mountain at night. Why are you going to get a learner's license? You need to go get your license. If you don't get it, you're going to walk all the way back home. This is way across town. And I went down. I waxed that exam because Billy would have made me walk. And he came back so proud and he smiled. And he said, now you get back, you tell Tom. My father was Tom Thomas Deutsch Sr. Tell him you need a car. And Dad gave me a car. But this one person believed in me, but that was what so many elders in the village did. In college, Tommy's major league leadership skills attracted powerful people and propelled him into a situation that became front-page news. I met John Lewis during that time. He was the president of the Voter Education Project. Uh, Julian Bond became one of my closest friends, like a brother. His father was the first president of Fort Valley State University. And Julian and the, the late Lenny King and John Lewis and Ben Brown, who was one of the greatest strategists, political strategists of our time, 
they all came down and said, look, we want you to run committed to Shirley Chisholm. See, many people forgot she was the first African-American, really, of modern time to run for president. And so I said, sure, if these folks, my mentors said, run, I'll run. And they said, we're going to send the forms, fill them out. We'll pick them up. We'll file them for you. Little did I know until the very next day on the front page of the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, it says student leader from Fort Valley State University runs against Governor Jimmy Carter for a delegate seat to the Democratic National Convention. Now, you might expect leaders in the Democratic Party to dismiss the efforts of a black college student who was nominated to be a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. You would be wrong. These men knew Tommy had the support of influential heavyweights like the late Julian Bond and John Lewis, and they had significant support from the entire African-American community statewide. As a result, Democratic Party leadership treated Tommy's bid to be a delegate like the big deal and major challenge that it really was. Now, normally, Middle Georgia, Macon was where the Democratic caucus would be held. Well, Fort Valley's 30 miles from Macon. So Zell Miller was the executive director of the Democratic Party at that time. He moved it to America's Georgia, 10 miles from Plains, which is 10 miles from where Jimmy Carter's home was. But we said fine. So then we went to uh, Trailway and Greyhound. For some reason, they had no buses available for us to rent. So we went to local churches, rented their buses, and we got some buses from private operators. But the amazing thing was we loaded up, we went to America's, Zell Miller didn't tell me that every candidate had an, would have an opportunity to speak. When I got there, we found out, when I went in to try and speak, this is too late. But my student leaders from Fort Valley spread it out in the audience. We did our thing. And, you know, the amazing thing was Jimmy Carter, sitting governor, only beat me by 15 votes. We had one bus that broke down, a church bus, broke down 25 miles from America, Georgia. That one bus had 25 students on it. We would have won the election as a delegate to the Democratic uh, National Convention. Then and now, Tommy doesn't dwell on losses. Instead, he has a unique ability instilled in him by his father, to look at the bigger picture. So in 2022, he remembers his campaign to represent Georgia as a Democratic national delegate as something positive in his life. I'm happy we didn't make it because Jimmy Carter went on to become the chair of the Senate Democratic Reelection Committee, went on to become president, and I think he was one of the greatest presidents we had, and particularly one of the hardest working ex-presidents this nation has ever had. And so we didn't win, but we won. It was a moral victory. Uh, And that kind of catapulted me into statewide exposure and elections. And 
When I graduated from Fort Valley, I was a Ford Fellow. When that fellowship ended, the first phase of Tommy's life as a Midas man began. But first, he turned down offers from several universities to complete his master's degree, and he even visited the campus of Ohio State. It was in November of 1972, and uh, it was three feet of snow. And I said, no way I'm going to sit, go through this two years and snow, Fort Valley snow one time in four years. And so I came on back, accepted the uh, full ride at Georgia State, because one, I came to Atlanta where Julian was and Ben Brown and, and John Lewis and all of them. It's like I died and went to heaven. I came into the city. I got to see the late Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young and Daddy King and Zenona Clayton. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he was assassinated my senior year, the day I was headed to D.C. for my senior class trip. But coming to this city, I met so many great people. And I cast my lot here, and I decided... I am not leaving Atlanta. I've been here 50 years. Every career option I had was based on my being in the city of Atlanta. Tommy also attributes some of his professional success to his affiliation with two nonprofit groups. So the Atlanta Business League, again, has been an organization that I've embraced, that I've invested in, that I've worked for because it's opened the doors for so many aspiring entrepreneurs, and for those who have been in business, they help them grow and, and expand and, and network. He's done more than just invest. He's actually chaired the ABL on three separate occasions. During his last stint in 2012, he coordinated an effort to pay off the mortgage for the organization's headquarters, located a mile from Mercedes-Benz Stadium. With typical Tommy ingenuity, he worked with Delta Airlines to get the entire amount paid off. During the course of a two-hour luncheon, Delta matched $2 for every one pledge during one of ABL's signature spring events. And with typical Tommy's shrewdness, he lined up people to pledge before the luncheon even began. The only other nonprofit who has received more of his attention is the 100 Black Men of America. I'm one of the charter members of 100 Atlanta, one of the founding members of 100 Black Men of America. The late um, Jackie Robinson, David Dinkins, a total 100 Black men came together to address the problem of um, police and public safety in New York. In 1963, an African-American police officer could not arrest a white citizen unless he was accompanied by a white police officer. And on this particular day in 1963, one of the African-American police officers in New York was at the scene of a crime, arrested a white citizen. They had a big uprising in the police department because he did. And so David Dinkins and those, David Dinkins was the borough's president, 
Many people know Jackie Robinson from his days as a baseball star, but he's one of our greatest civil rights leaders, too. They came together, took on the police department, changed all of those rules, took on other social issues in New York. And the end of 1963, the question came first to the group, well, shall we stay together? And they said yes. So the next question was, what shall we call ourselves? And David Dinkins said, we'll call ourselves who we are, 100 black men of New York. And they gave rise to 100 Black Men, Inc. It's a total of 100 of the most powerful black men in New York. The charter for our national organization was done by attorney Mac Hunter. Mac had to be out in trial, and so Bill Campbell actually filed the papers. And from 1968 to now, there are 101 chapters. In 97, I took the group to Africa, England, the Caribbean islands. I became the third head of this organization in 1994. I served 10 years. Then I said, 10 years is a good number. I left my mentee, Al Dotson, served eight. He left Curly Dossman, did five. And then they came calling again and convinced me to run again. So this will be my 16th year, which I am definitely giving it up. When I came in, I brought a proposal called Four for the Future. So everything we do has to fall in those four areas, education, mentoring, health and wellness, and economic empowerment. Originally, it was called violence prevention. But Dr. David Satcher said when he was head of CDC, he said violence is a, is a number one health issue for for black people. And so that's been the foundation for everything we've done since 1994. But the organization has grown. I have about 8,000 members. I have over 125,000 young people in our mentoring program. 40% of our mentees are young ladies because young ladies need positive men in their lives. We've been blessed as an organization to have grown uh, and to be able to have the impact We've been honored in two Rose Garden ceremonies, one by President Bill Clinton and one by President George W. Bush, Sr. Um, we've been honored by kings and queens and prime ministers. But the important thing is we've been honored by young people. We They change our lives just as we try to change theirs. The ABL and the 100 Black Men of America bookend two of Tommy's passions. He wants to see more black people own their own companies and more young people understand the basics of finance. Well, first, we don't do enough of teaching our young people about wealth, about savings, about investing. Uh, a little over 20 years ago, I started a program called Young Men of Distinction at Gene Young Middle School got my money managers to come teach my young people how to select stock, importance of savings and all of that. And I gave them $10,000, divided the group into two groups, 5000 each for them to invest that money. But we had to teach them to understand the basics. For example, when you're buying stocks, what do you buy every day? What do your family buy? Um, but if we don't, if you, you, you don't know what you don't know, 
And so unfortunately, our folks haven't been taught about generational wealth. But every generation should leave life better for the next generation. You know, my parents did that for me. My father only had a seventh grade education. But back then, black people didn't go past seventh grade. My mother went back to college at age 62, got her degree um, because she loved working in child development. Uh, and so that education is so important and so key. But it's not, as I've said in the 100 and say to my children, it's not about whether you go get a college degree, but you need to get marketable skills. Whether you go to trade school, whether you go to um, community college, whether you go to four-year college. But the important thing, you must be able to provide for yourself and your family. However, because Tommy is such a strong supporter of HBCUs, all five of his children hold degrees from historically black colleges or universities, and two of them graduated from his alma mater. Because me and my brother went to Fort Valley, then my two children, and now I have two grandsons at Fort Valley State University. Um, They're freshmen this year. Tommy's love and support for Fort Valley State was officially honored in 2022. They named the auditorium, uh, the ballroom rather, after me, the Thomas W. Dortz Jr. Ballroom. That ballroom used to be the dining hall when I was in college. And it was such a moving um, ceremony. I was happy to have my grandchildren there and my wife and so many family members. But to have that ballroom name, is it was nostalgic because I love Fort Valley State University. It uh, gave me a solid foundation to do the things that I've done. Which, as you know now, is a lot. And is finally getting recognized, not only in his hometown, but even in New York City. The uh, city of Atlanta proclaiming the Thomas W. Dortz Jr. Day. And also another moving time was to ring the closing bell for the New York Stock Exchange. You know, the amazing thing was the day I rung the bell, stocks went up over 400. Now the uh, folks from NASDAQ want me to come ring the bell, so... Now, it'll take a little magic to NASDAQ. Not magic, Tommy. It's that Midas touch. The interesting thing about that, he doesn't take all of the credit for having it or accumulating so much success through his six companies. And I've been blessed to have my wife, Carol, the CFO. She was Maynard Jackson's first budget director. She worked um, as the um, Commission of Administrative Services on the Ambassador Young. President Clinton appointed her as regional administrator, GSA. She served as the uh, assistant general manager of Hartsville-Jackson, and then she was chief of staff for uh, John Eves. So she's had the gamut. She's a, she's a bad sister. All the uh, smart people on her in PhDs, you know, you, you hire them. In this case, they're married. <laughs> it seems like Tommy has led a protected life. Good parents, solid education, bright, talented, athletic, shrewd, the ability to successfully run six companies and employ up to 300 people, intelligent wife, smart children, grandfather of 14. 
that's an impressive list for the life of one man. But Tommy has worn leather gloves in the interview room throughout this entire question-and-answer session because he's spent decades going round after round against an opponent he doesn't often discuss. 35 years ago, I had a battle with one of the deadliest cancers ever documented, adenocarcinoma in the small intestine. It had a 92% mortality rate. I'm an 8% who beat it. I've had prostate cancer. Right now, for the last three and a half years, I've been battling uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. Usually within six months, you're dead. My PSA kept fluctuating up and down, up and down. I had um, MRI and a PET scan. The MRI didn't reveal, but the PET scan revealed the cancer, did the biopsy, and they found I had stage four pancreatic cancer. And I've been in treatment ever since. Attitude is important. People have to understand that your body is a phenomenal machine. Just as much as having great doctors, just as much as having great medicine, the other thing is making sure that you keep a positive attitude. And so with the positive attitude and my faith, I've been able to, um, to this point, survive. But they discovered also that there's this gene that me, my youngest of my sisters who died of breast cancer three years ago, my brother who's two years older than me transitioned seven months ago of cancer, and my oldest sister who is in remission from breast cancer. There's this gene we all had. And so now I'm having gene therapy as well as I've had chemo. I tell you, it is it is a, something you don't want to go through. So I'm dealing with neuropathy. I'll be at MD Anderson uh, going there for treatment. I've been at Emory Midtown and the Winship uh, Cancer Institute. My mother lived to be 96 years young, and she died of natural causes. And while I've had my medical challenges, I'm still battling to make sure I try to make it in that ballpark of my mother. So I'm in it to win it. As you have been with all challenges in your life, and because you've been so successful in moving the needle of change, you have affected the lives of almost everyone in Georgia. Now, there are many people who see this state as politically monolithic, but that's because they don't know the contributions Tom Dortch Sr. and his peers made in their community. More importantly, they miss the attributes of leadership, resilience, and a winning spirit that man instilled in the son who carries his name. But make no mistake about it, he is his father's namesake, but in all things, Thomas W. Dorch Jr. is truly one of a kind. And it is the good fortune of everyone in this state that he chose Metro Atlanta as his home. You've just listened to an Atlanta Business League episode of Lessons from Leaders. This is part of the Telling Our Story broadcast series produced by Marty Covington of The Right Once, recorded at The Plug Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, and edited by Chase Allen of Marchaz Co-Productions, LLC. All rights for this broadcast are reserved.